Thanks, Joel. Uh, say hi to a couple people you didn't come with and then have a seat. It was great to have Joel Robinette with us tonight, and uh, he just has a new album that actually pre-released this week, and so um, I think they're going to have some in the back if you'd like some mellow out music while you're driving in the car. I've been listening to it for the last couple days, and it's really nice. It'll put you in a good mood really easily, and also I noticed down at Costa Mesa that Joel's doing a concert this Saturday night there. They're starting their summer out on the field concerts and Joel's gonna be playing this Saturday night at about eight o'clock or something. So if you'd like to hear a little bit more of it, invite you to get out there for that. Joel remembers when I was a song leader and had hair, but I remember the first time Joel was in the worship band at Calvary Costa Mesa. And he's a, Joel's an accomplished jazz musician, and I was excited. He finally got the chance. He had been at Calvary since he was a little kid, and now he's working the big room. He was playing in a band with John Wickham. And, and so I went up in the sound room and wanted to hear. I figured he'd throw in a bunch of licks. And, and so I had the sound man solo on Joel, and Joel was so scared that he it just one note every once in a while. But he was, like, going away. Like, you, it reminded me of his little, you know, machine here. But... Uh, He's come a long ways since then, and uh, I, I know you'll enjoy that CD if, you, if you're able to get a hold of one tonight, and just really appreciate you guys coming tonight, too. Um, the Married Couples Potluck on Saturday, August 2nd at 5.30. Um, invite everyone to come to that, and if you're not a couple, they could use a few people to help watch kids minister to the children during the potluck. I think they'll give you food. I'm sure we can sneak some food to you at least. Um, also remember the Camp Calvary, our one-day VBS, Tuesday, July 22nd. If you haven't signed up for your kids or maybe ask a few neighbor kids if they want to participate in that, that'll be a great opportunity. So I think there are all kinds of announcements up here, but I'm thinking it looks like the same stack from Sunday. So uh, let's dive right into Matthew chapter 4. On Wednesday nights, we're studying through now the book of Matthew as we're taking a detour from our Old Testament study. The book of Matthew ties in so much with the Old Testament, I thought it would be a good one to integrate into our Old Testament studies. Matthew is the gospel that presents Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who would fulfill all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And the book of Matthew helps us to understand the, New Te the Old Testament in a, in a huge way. And, and so personally, I'm enjoying studying through it and hope you are too. In, we're, we did the first three chapters last week. We're in chapter four tonight. Now, on Sunday morning, I took the whole passage about Jesus being tempted by the devil, and it's the first 11 chapters of chapter four. So if you didn't hear that and you're interested in it at all, you can get the tape or the CD or the MP3 or something and, and hear it later. We're not gonna go all the way through it again. Basically, it's that story of the devil taking Jesus out before Jesus' ministry really started, right after he had been baptized by John the Baptist, and now the devil took him out out and tempted him and we saw some of the principles of temptation and of fighting temptation as we paralleled this passage with Genesis chapter 3 as the devil tempted Eve and with 1 John chapter 2 where it talks about the, the areas of temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. So um, you can get more details on that if you'd like by getting hold of last Sunday morning's message. Now we come to verse 12. And it says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. He was down near Jerusalem at the time. And it seemed that when he realized that, because the role of John the Baptist was to introduce Jesus as the Messiah. But now that John the Baptist was going to jail and he would be killed not much later, Jesus realized, okay, this is where I start in to do what the Father called me to do. And so... He, he uh, left from Jerusalem and went to Galilee, which is 
up there towards the north part of Israel. It's where he spent uh, a good majority of his time here uh, on the earth was up in that Galilee region. And so it says, in leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is right up there by the Sea of Galilee, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, and again, this is another one of those prophecies from Isaiah chapter 9, referring to the Messiah, and it said, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee was one of the most worldly places in that area of the world. It was, a, if you've ever been there, it's a beautiful resort kind of area there on the Sea of Galilee, but it was, a, it was kind of the place where the worldly people went for their vacations. And so it was prophesied that Messiah would come there. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And again, that's a prophecy from Isaiah fulfilled by Jesus. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This whole idea of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom is something that recurs throughout the book of Matthew. We talked about it. He, he almost 40 times he uses that phrase, kingdom of heaven, and uses kingdom about 50 times because it's presenting Jesus as the king. Now, when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he's saying is this is the time. And whenever we refer to the kingdom of heaven, and a lot of times there are people who will distinguish between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And by context, sometimes you can tell a difference. Sometimes when it talks about kingdom, it's speaking specifically of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. But in, in Matthew, it's the introduction of Jesus Christ as the king. And the kingdom of heaven is the idea of, of, the, of that God should be ruling here. The kingdom of heaven, the standards of God, his leadership and his rulership and his royalty, it's here. He's saying, I'm offering it. Now, we see a, a real shifting as we get later in the book because Jesus came and offered himself as the Messiah. But as he's rejected by the Jewish leaders, then it becomes apparent that that there is going to be an interval of time before the, his kingdom comes on earth. And he knew that all along. And, but the kingdom of heaven is basically what he prayed later in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Lord's Prayer, where he said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what he came to present is, here's what God wants the world to be like. Here are the standards and the qualities that you're going to have. And so he's saying, here it is. I am it, Jesus is saying. Look at me, you'll see what God wants from people. Look at me and you'll see how you're supposed to live. And, you know, the question is, well, what if they had accepted him as the Messiah? Interesting question, interesting hypothetical question. People have written entire books on it. I don't know what would have happened. Jesus still would have had to die for our sins. And so how that would have happened, I don't know. But John chapter 1 talks about he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. And so there's that shifting of saying he came and offered himself as the Messiah. Israel rejected him, and so he made an offer to the world, but it involved the church age that we're in now and, and a pretty good interval of time, at least a couple thousand years, before he would finally come and, and rule and reign over Israel as he had come to do. So this is his message at the point, repent, turn around, change. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and, and Jesus is the one who gave him that name, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there... He saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. At this point in Matthew, he only demonstrates the foremost notable, probably, of the disciples, these two pairs of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. In other places, he explains the calling of all the other disciples. But he came to them. They were fishermen. 
he right away, you know, said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So you get the idea that he was calling them not just come and follow me, be my entourage, be my bodyguards, be my, you know, uh, crew. It was, no, I am going to show you how you can make a difference in people's lives. I'm going to show you how you can reach out to others. And so I'm calling you so that I can train you so that God can use you. And, and that was, in fact, what he did. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of God's kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him, from Galilee, that's that northern area, from Decapolis, those were 10 cities that were just kind of northeast of the Galilee region, and from Jerusalem, which is down in the south, to the, to the west of the Dead Sea, and Judea down in the south, and beyond the Jordan, over even on the other side of the Jordan River towards um, present days, Saudi Arabia, not, not that far south, but more like Iran and Iraq. So moving around these areas in the Jordan area, up in the Galilee, down towards Jerusalem, Jesus was at this point presenting the gospel of the kingdom, saying, look, God wants to reign over his people. There's a new life that you can have. You don't have to keep living the way that you're living. You can change. There's an opportunity for you to turn around and to repent. The kingdom of heaven, it's here. And so offering this and then demonstrating it and fulfilling the prophecies that said that the Messiah would come and heal. And so he's healing all these people. It's interesting to me that through all of the attacks on Jesus, throughout his entire career, no one ever questioned whether or not he was really healing people. The leaders didn't come and say, oh, it's a trick. You know, oh, he's not really. Those people, they were well already. You know, that, and they knew these people were being healed. You look at the list of people who were healed. It was pretty amazing. Now, they, when they attacked him, they would say, oh, you're probably doing that by the power of Satan. But they didn't say he didn't heal. Today, people look at the story of Jesus and they somehow think, no, he couldn't have done the kind of miracles that the Bible talks about. They weren't questioned at the time because everyone saw it. It was really obvious. And... I think it was a part of the notion of the good news. See, as he comes and, and broken people are healed, hurt people are made well, sick people are made whole, demons are cast out. You get the idea. That's why everyone was swarming to him. Because, hey, it's good news. There's a guy out there. And he can touch people and make a difference in their lives. Now, the miracles weren't an end in themselves. They were only to attract a crowd. And then when the people were there, the gospel of the kingdom was preached, the good news. I would love to know exactly what he was telling them and how he introduced his message. But here in chapters 5, 6, and 7, we have one of the most important passages in the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this wasn't a message that he preached to the people as the gospel of the kingdom, but this is, a, this is his kingdom message that he gave to his disciples, instructing them in response to, notice it says, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So here, he's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's been saying, look, God's kingdom, it, it's here. He wants to rule over you. God wants to know you. He wants to enter into a relationship with you. And what this world needs is to start to do things God's way, repent, turn around, change. And now he paints this picture in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 of exactly what God's kingdom ought to look like. And God's kingdom isn't about things, it's not about buildings, it's not about possessions. It's about people and their hearts. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, we have, and right off the bat with the Beatitudes there in chapter 5, we have Jesus Christ saying, look, here's what the kingdom of heaven is about. Here's what God ruling is all about. He wants to make quality people. He wants to turn you from that which you are 
Someone who's hurtful and destructive, someone who's selfish and living a meaningless existence, and, and God wants to pour value into your life. He wants to bring beauty from the ashes of what you've done to yourselves. And so he begins to explain to them what a godly person really ought to look like and what he really wants to do in people's lives. Now, a lot of people look at the Sermon on the Mountain. There are two extremes. There are some people who say, the Sermon on the Mount is all you need. That's the only Bible you really need. There are other people who say, the Sermon on the Mount has no relevance to us at all. It's talking about the kingdom age. It's applicable during the millennium, but, but rather than deal with some of the difficult passages in this sermon, they would rather just say, no, you know, it doesn't apply to us. It's not about us, because there are some difficult passages in this sermon. But the truth is, if we are Jesus' disciples, this Sermon on the Mount applies to us. For one thing, everything in the Sermon on the Mount is listed in other places in Scripture as well. So if you're going to toss out the Sermon on the Mount, you better toss out the rest of the New Testament also. But today, this gives us an idea of what God wants to see from our hearts, what he wants to see in our lives, because today he looks out there at that world that, that he has called us to reach and to touch. And as he looks at the multitude, he pulls us close and he says, okay, if my kingdom is going to come to this earth, if my will will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven, here's what you guys need to be like. Here's what I'm talking about, the standard of a godly life. And I'm going to paint the picture not from without as the law does. The law made a bunch of rules that governed exterior behavior. The law could say nothing about a person's heart, really. It was all about behavior. But Jesus is pointing out here in, a, in some ways a commentary on the law and saying, now let's get to the surface of the whole thing. Here's what I want to do within your life my disciples, my people, those who are following me, those who desire to be fishers of men, here are the real qualities that need to emanate from the middle of you on out so that we're not just hung up on exteriors. And how we're, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, I could, I could do it for months and months and months, and I'm going to try to, well, we'll just see how far we get. The Beatitudes, the, the Blesseds, the word blessed, it's kind of interesting because Psalm, uh, the book of Psalms, in Psalm chapter 1, it begins with a beatitude as well. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Blessed, here, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, this is all about the kingdom. And who's going to rule? Who's going to be in charge on this earth? Who's going to be in charge in our lives and in our hearts? And so he holds this out. And there are people who say that blessed should just be translated happy. And that's not too bad. But to be blessed is more than just to be happy. I think, uh, I think it was Robert Schuller that first coined the phrase for the Beatitudes. He calls them the be happy attitudes. And, and that's not too bad. I mean, that's better than a lot of what he has said over the years. But, <laughs> but to be blessed the way they would use the word means more than just to be happy. It's, it's, a, it's a strong word that literally it, it refers to congratulations. It's like if all of a sudden you, you've seen these shows or these events where the one millionth customer comes through the door. And boom, you're the one millionth customer. The band strikes up, balloons are falling. It's like, this is your lucky day. And that's kind of the idea of being blessed, to be congratulated. Uh, most Christians object to the term lucky, but the truth is, in its etymology, there's nothing negative about it. It's not referring to randomness at all. But by the way we use language, what, what he's saying in a way is, hey, you're really lucky. You're really blessed. And here's the kind of life that God blesses. Here's the kind of life that leads to the blessings of God. And it's, it's kind of interesting and it's completely reversed of everything political that we've ever seen. Because when you talk about somebody bringing in a kingdom, 
It's usually all about what you have to do. What is this going to cost you? What are you going to have to pay? What do we need to do for our ruler? What's he? But here, he begins in talking about the kingdom of heaven. He talks about the subjects, the people, the citizens, and says that this kind of happiness, this kind of blessing, this congratulations, it's to go to people, a certain kind of person that fits with what the kingdom of heaven is all about. Now, some of what he says, most of what he says in the Beatitudes seems almost illogical or contradictory. I mean, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Really what he's talking about, and as you look through the Beatitudes, and, and we don't have time to go in depth through them, but get the picture, what the Beatitudes are about is it's a progression. And poor in spirit is where it all starts. And what being poor in spirit really means is that you realize spiritually that you're bankrupt in and of yourself. That you say spiritually, I'm broke, I'm busted. I don't have anything. I cannot on my own work up something spiritual. I can't just be a spiritual person. It doesn't work. When I do it, I end up frustrated. It ends up empty. But he's saying, no, if you are poor in spirit, if you are a person who realizes, oh man, I'm in trouble. Well, that's the start. That's the start to blessings. You're understanding the doorway into the kingdom of heaven. Because if we don't realize our own personal bankruptcy spiritually, then we'll never find our way into the kingdom of heaven. And with all of these beatitudes, it's kind of funny. People spend their lives trying to be happy. And if you seek happiness, you'll never find it. It just, it's like they say, you know, trying to catch a butterfly. You can chase them all over the place, or you can sit there really quietly and one might come and land on your shoulder. And happiness, blessing from God, is kind of that way. You try to get it, it's elusive. But when you realize, oh man, I can't do it, then you start to understand that's what God needed you to realize from the beginning. It was, in fact, the purpose of the law. The law was given so that man would realize that they can't follow the law. And so if you've come to a point in your life where you're feeling frustrated and empty and I just can't do it and you're feeling like such a sinner and you're going, I'm just poor. I'm not. I used to think I was really spiritual, but man, after that happened, after I thought that, after I did that, I realized I don't have any business being a Christian. He goes, good, good. That's the point. That's the deal. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it in the flesh. And so people who are rich in spirit, people who are very super spiritual, people who have high opinions of themselves, can't enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't work that way. It's only when we recognize our own bankruptcy that we can even get in the door. Then he goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we realize our own depravity, when we come to understand our own failure, our own miserable state in our flesh, we cry, we mourn. If you've never been to the point where you've cried over your own failure, your own life, what you've done to yourself, if all you've ever done is blame other people for the mess that your life is, and you've never actually looked in the mirror and gone, this is my fault, I did this, then I question whether you're really being blessed. You might feel like, hey, life is great because you've built up this house of cards, this kingdom of cards for yourself, and, and you're convinced that you're really spiritual, and you're looking down your nose and judging other people. Uh, I'll tell you, if you look around in this room and you're thinking, I'm more spiritual than most of the people in this room, you might not be in the kingdom because it's those who are poor in spirit and who mourn that God meets that God relates to. And it's a shame. It's happened all over the place in the church where people feel rejected because they can tell that everyone's looking down on them. When looking down on someone, hey, if we realize that we're low, that should cause us to see the doors fly open, the welcome mat come out. God's saying, hey, you get it. This is great. You're crying. That's the purpose of the law. 
You see your failure? Good. Now we have something to deal with. Now we have something to talk about. But Jesus, as he made it clear when he talked to the Pharisees, those super spiritual, super righteous people, he said, I didn't come for the well people. I came for the sick people. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. And so the pathway to blessing for us is to be aware, is to be um, honest, is to be completely cognizant of the fact that Man, am I a mess. Boy, am I poor. Boy, I, I cry when I think about some of the things that I do to the Lord. I'm right in his face, right in front of him. Hey, that's a good thing. That's a good place to be. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. We were just reading in the book of Numbers where Moses referred to himself as being the meekest man on the earth. Well, what meekness is, basically, it's not a temperament of shyness. It's not a, a word that says, oh, I should just be a doormat or something like that. But the word for meek refers to people who don't look out for their own interest, but they're open and reaching out to and caring for others. They're other-centered rather than self-centered. And it's that kind of meekness that will cause us ultimately to inherit the earth. It, now, our world tells us something otherwise. It says, you know, if you want to be a winner, if you want to be successful, if you want to inherit the earth, hey, then greed is good. You need to go for it. You need to assert yourself. You need to push your way. You need to manipulate. Hey, that's how you get happiness. But it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked for any of the people that this world considers successful. And yet, for every failed attempt at forcing your way to blessing, boy, you'll find these people who just seems like they don't really worry about themselves at all. All they do is reach out and put other people ahead of them. As we've seen so often with Jesus himself, when he, it's and there in that great passage in Philippians, esteem others higher than yourself. He didn't hang on to the fact that he was God. He emptied himself. And that's what meekness is about. And what he's saying here is, well, in, in other places he says it like this. What will it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his soul? If you seek to find your life, you'll lose it. But if you seek to lose your life, you'll find it. Sounds contradictory, but it's true. That when we decide that the, that the energy of our life should be spent reaching out to others because when we realize that it's not about us. We would rather have the attention not be focused on us because we've just been mourning about how poor we are spiritually. So we don't want to propel ourselves up to a position of prominence. But instead, what we want to do is lay our life out and just be a, a servant that melts into the background who just quietly, calmly serves God's people and serves God. And when that happens, it's amazing. Inheriting the earth, having things that just being blessed in ways that you can't imagine. I've seen this in our own lives, how God has blessed us. I, I remember when, when Ann and I were talking about getting married, I told her, you know, I'm a pastor. We'll never own a house. We'll be living in a crummy apartment and we'll scrape to get by. And that's just the way our life is going to be. But it's amazing. And we did fulfill that. It was a, we went through horrible times. And out of the blue, though, some guy offered us, and we had rent for a year and a half free in a really nice house and it enabled us to save up some money and buy our first house and all that kind of thing. We couldn't have done that. I think of all the times when something happened out of the blue that I go, you know, if I had worked hard all my life to be successful, I probably wouldn't be as blessed as I've been. I have friends who, it's great, you know, you have friends who have a lot of stuff. If I want to go out on a boat, I can do it. If I want to fly somewhere, I could do it. If I want to, and I don't have to take care of the stuff or pay for it or anything. It's just, it's amazing. I, I have a friend that has a house out in Palm Springs, and we went and stayed there a couple Easter's ago. And it's like an 8,000-square-foot house on the Gulf on PGA West with its own swimming pool. And it's like, I just lay in that house, and I just laugh and think, God, you're amazing. I feel like a rich guy until my kids got in trouble for trying to golf on, you know, on the golf course. But, you know, you feel, 
you go, this is, this is the way a rich person feels, except they'd be worried about it all the time. They'd be thinking, oh, we don't use it enough. But God will always, when you pour your life out for others, he takes care of you. And sometimes he does it in ways that are just laughably extravagant. That you go, I can't believe this. I can't believe what's happening. It's, it's a blessing. It's what God does. And it's always, his kingdom is about that. Not propelling yourself to prominence. But instead, seeing in what way you can serve. And then allowing God as he did with Jesus there in that Philippians 2 passage. So God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, which is above every name. The meek are going to inherit the earth. And if not on this earth, it's going to happen. Someday when we're here ruling and reigning with Christ, you can go wherever you want. You can stay wherever you want. You can travel around all you want. It's not going to cost you a thing. You'll be in charge. Ultimately, because we've identified with the kingdom of heaven, don't worry, for all of eternity, we're going to be so rich that it really doesn't matter what you have here and now. It really doesn't matter what kind of toys or trinkets you have here. You'll have anything you want when you're in heaven. Now, will you want jet skis and stuff? I don't know. You know, I, I, one of my professors, one time a girl whose dog had just died, raised her hand in class and said, do you think we'll have dogs in heaven? And she, he looked at her and he said, honey, if you get to heaven and you want a dog, you'll have a dog. <laughs> and I like that. So if you get to heaven and you want to surf, you'll surf. If you get to heaven and you want a Harley, you'll have one. Uh, maybe we get to heaven, we won't want them. That's great. But when we get to heaven, we'll have everything we want. There will be nothing that we would go, oh, I wish I had that. I want that. So it makes more sense if being meek now, being selfless now, causes us to be blessed and to realize that, wow, the whole world is ours. I have everything I want. To learn to be content where we are is just an amazing blessing, an amazing gift from God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Again, what do you want? What do you want from life? What are you trying to get? What is your wish list? What do you want for Christmas? What do you want to be when you grow up? The people who are blessed are saying, you know what I really hunger for? It's not a bigger house or a new boat or, or you know, uh, a prominent position in society or, you know, a new wife or husband. or No, you know, what I really want, I want righteousness. I want to do what's right. I want my life to please God. And he says, if you can hunger and thirst for that, if you're seeking that with all of your heart, if you're going, all I want to do is please God, then you're going to be satisfied. If you want anything else, you may not be satisfied. In fact, you won't be satisfied for sure because if you want it and you get it, you're going to be disappointed because it's not as cool as you thought it would be. But if you want it and you don't get it, then you still have that longing. You still have that feeling. You know, it's just... Uh, it was funny when I was a kid always for I don't know why I never got one but I always wanted that rifleman rifle with the round thing on it where you could you know Lucas McCain on the rifleman you might have seen it in reruns most of you are way too young to remember Lucas but they had a toy rifle that was like his and it's funny I never got one I it was my favorite show and you know but I just never got one they were kind of expensive it was just a cap gun but I was amazed a year ago or so, a year and a half ago, I was looking on eBay and all these, these things are collectors now. They're like 300 bucks, 400 bucks even for these rifles. And you know what's funny? I still kind of wanted one. It's just so stupid. I'm like, what am I going to do with it now? You know, I'm going to take it out to the desert with the Harrisons and shoot caps. It's just not, I have real guns, you know, to, but there's something about it because I never got it. I wanted it. And finally, I even bid on them a few times, but then I finally came to my senses and go, this is stupid. What would I do with this plastic rifle? But life is that way. If you get it, if I had got one, it would be broken, thrown away. I would have given it to some kid or whatever. And, you know, but because I didn't get it, then I'm unhappy also. 
And that's the way life is. It's only when, and I talked to the high school kids about this last week, about learning to be content with what you have, with where you are, with who you are. It's a huge lesson to learn in life. To say, I'm happy with what I have. I'm satisfied with what I have. What I want, I want to become a better person. I want God's righteousness. I want to pray because I want his righteousness to happen in the people's lives around me. I want this world to change and to repent. I hunger, I thirst, I desire for his righteousness. And in my own life, because remember, I was poor in spirit. I was mourning. I'm meek. And now I'm going, oh, man, God. Why did I ever search for all of those other things? Why haven't I been looking for your righteousness? That's what I need. That's holiness. That's what I long for. That's what I need. He goes on to say, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, mercy is a term that's thrown around a lot in Scripture. And a lot of times in conjunction with grace, grace and mercy, grace, mercy, and peace, Grace is, a, is how you treat someone in relationship to their sin. God forgiving our sins and being able to give good to us despite our sin. Mercy is a different angle. What the word mercy refers to is the way that you are compassionate toward people who are suffering as a result of sin. The way that you are compassionate, you care, you are moved by the results of sin in people's lives. And when we see ourselves for who we are and we desire God's righteousness, it does not cause us to be people who are super spiritual. It does not cause us to be judgmental, to be angry. I know there's a whole category of people in the church of Jesus Christ everywhere that thinks they're better than everyone else, that can't wait to point their finger at everything that's wrong, that they, they line up on the church to tell everybody what's wrong with everybody. And oh, if they find out that somebody has a sin, they can't wait to call attention to it. They can't wait to tell people about it. And it's done in the, in the guise of this spiritual sort of, oh, pray for so-and-so. Have you noticed the way he's been acting lately? And I'm suspicious about, I don't know, there are some things going on here that just don't make... That is not the heart of someone who has the kingdom of God working within their life. The result of someone who's hungering and thirsting after righteousness is that we look at people who are destroying themselves... And we're moved with pity for them. We care about them. It's not just looking the other way. It's not just belittling someone's sin. No, in fact, it means very often that we need to go and confront sin personally in people's lives. That we need to come out there and be honest. But as the Bible tells us, if you go to someone... For one thing, don't go to other people. Go straight to them, Matthew 18. But also make sure that you're not being tempted. Check your own heart as well. And you, in a spirit of humility, you go to them. Why? Because you see the damage that they're doing to themselves and you want to help. Now, sometimes they're just going to bite your head off. And I've had people just completely bite my head off when I tried to, I I just saw that they were hurting and I could see it was obvious how God could help and and they didn't want to hear it and they got real mad at me. But then sometimes later down the road somewhere they said, you know, deep down inside I knew you were right and God really did use what you shared with me even though I was really mean to you. Um, I thank you, I appreciate you doing that. But... If we aren't merciful people, we have no business sticking our nose into anyone else's affairs. We have no business going and telling you know, others how wrong they are. Parents, this goes for how we treat our children as well. That it's not just shaking our finger at them and making them feel like, oh, kids are so bad and parents are so good. But it's looking at them with compassion, with mercy, and, and saying, I just hate to see you hurting yourself. Bad things are going to happen. And it's because I love you that I'm concerned about what's going on. That's what Jesus does with us. That's how he treats us. He knows it's the goodness and the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. And those who are merciful shall obtain mercy. Now, what does that mean? It almost sounds like, well, if you're not a merciful person then God's not going to show mercy on you? Or is it maybe people aren't going to show mercy on you? It's certainly true. If you're an arrogant person, if you don't show mercy to others, then 
a lot of times others won't show mercy on you. And there's a practical side to that. But I believe that this might mean a lot more than that. Later, when we read in the Sermon on the Mount, when we eventually get to it in chapter 6, in the, in the Lord's Prayer, he says that if you don't forgive people's sins, then God won't forgive you. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I'm not sure completely what that means, but think about it. If someone has been genuinely touched by God and he, God has forgiven them, can they do anything but be forgiving if they really understand how God has forgiven them? And back to the Beatitudes, if you have genuinely received the mercy of God, won't it make you a merciful person? And if you find that you're a very unmerciful, ungracious, unforgiving person, I'm going to be the last one to tell you, oh, it's okay, you're probably still a Christian. I don't know. I'm not sure. Because how do you know you're a Christian? You may be. If you want to take your chance at it, fine, go ahead and be judgmental. But just in case, at least for me, I need to know that I am bearing within my life signs, evidence, that I'm actually a child of God. And when I look at this, do I need mercy? Absolutely. I need mercy not just from God. I need it from you. I need it from my family and my friends. I will test your mercy consistently. And as I've received mercy, God, I, don't, I don't want to be somebody who doesn't show it. I don't want to be someone who doesn't extend mercy because if I don't extend mercy, maybe I don't understand what mercy is all about. And if I don't understand what mercy is all about, back up through the Beatitudes and maybe I just never even realized how poor in spirit I am and I need to start over and allow this process to go through. But it's a natural process that leads to a merciful life. Oh, man. I thought we'd get through 5, 6, and 7 tonight. (laughs) Blessed are the pure in heart. This is where it starts coming, for they shall see God. Well, what does that mean about impure people in heart? Well, this is a problem because is my heart really pure? But as we go through this process, we begin to see God working in our lives in such a way that he does purify our hearts. Deep down inside, though, this is it. Now, when God purifies us, then we see him more clearly. Now we do. We see through a glass darkly, Paul told the Corinthians. But then we'll see face to face. Then the promise is we will know even as we are known. John said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so this is a continuum, but as God purifies my heart, I begin to see him more clearly. And that's the ultimate blessing. That's ultimately what blessing is all about. It's seeing God. And if I don't see God clearly, I'm also being unrealistic about myself. But if I'm dealing, allowing God to deal with my heart, if I'm reminding myself of my own poverty of spirit, if I'm if I'm demanding of myself that I become more merciful, that, that, I, that I literally mourn when I, when I realize I've failed, then what happens? God can do that work in my heart, and as he purifies my heart, the picture of God just becomes clearer. It just begins to develop. I don't know if you've ever seen that picture on a piece of paper I'll have to dig it up if you haven't, but it's this thing you stare at it. It doesn't look like anything. It just looks like a black blob, but you stare at it for a period of time, close your eyes, and then you look up at the ceiling and you see the face of Jesus that just appears. It's really a cool little deal. Um, If enough people want it, I'll try to find it and we'll sell them in the store for like five bucks. No, no. (laughs) But that's what happens is God purifies our heart. We look and, wow, I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to see his face. I'm uh, I'm beholding him. And it's at that point that I realize I am so blessed. I'm so happy. I'm so lucky. I'm, I'm to be congratulated because I'm seeing God as he purifies my heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
This is a practical way that we see that this is happening. As we see God, we become peacemakers. We become people who want to become at peace with others. We see two people who aren't getting along. We want to try to bring them together. It's See, he is called the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus said, I have come that you would have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He came in order to bring peace. So in our own lives, how do we begin to witness that work of God in our lives? Well, we'll be people instead of stirring up trouble. We'll be trying to bring people together. We'll be trying to reach out and give peace to others. We'll be trying to make peace between people. We'll be trying to help people to see how they can be at peace with God. We'll be peacemakers. And when people see that, they'll see God. Because that's what he's all about. That's the quality of the kingdom. If we are causing trouble everywhere we go, people don't see the Prince of Peace. People don't see that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, it's not there. When they see it, they realize the family resemblance that we have with our Father and will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now he, interestingly, the first beatitude in verse 3 said, the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now as he wraps them up, he says, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of bookends on the beatitudes in a way saying this is what the kingdom is about. But if you're going, he's just warning them right off the bat, if you are going to become a child of the kingdom, if you're going to allow God to work in your life this way, some people aren't going to like it. They're going to resent you. It's going to be dif difficult for you at times. But you know what? The kingdom of heaven, you're there. It's not going to mean much because people are giving you a hard time. For us, often, when people start to give us a hard time for just a few minutes, and next thing you know, we're totally out of the kingdom. We've said, forget all this stuff. I'm going to lash back. I'm going to fight back. But he's saying here, no, the true peacemaker, the true person who's poor in spirit, who mourns, who, who hunger and thirsts for righteousness, this person who's merciful. And No, when, when it happens, yeah, people are going to lash out at you, but you're going to be blessed. You're going to be happy anyway. You're going to be okay. You're going to deal with it fine. Now, he says that if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, I think most people, when they're persecuted as Christians, it's not for righteousness' sake at all. Often we just meddle and we get in the way. First, first Peter talks about this. when he, Peter talks about the fact that people meddle in other people's affairs and then they suffer for it. He said, that's not, that's not to your credit at all. So it's not sticking your nose into people's lives and having them lop it off and they oh, I'm being persecuted. He's talking about because people are so challenged by you being such a good person that it bugs them and they lash out at you. They, they get angry with you. Sometimes it's because you're the safe person to do it with. Sometimes it's because they're under heavy condemnation. They're under heavy uh, conviction by the Spirit, and, and you're a reminder of what they know that they ought to be, but they've chosen not to be. But he says, you'll be blessed even if that happens. Blessed are you, and he kind of wrapping it up, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus in another place said, Look, they're persecuting me. They're going to persecute you. That's the way it's going to go. And so it's not the Beatitudes are not these qualities of life that we say, oh, it's just going to, life's going to be a picnic. No. But in the middle of anything that you go through, there's going to be that feeling of blessing. There's going to be that fulfillment of God's work in your life. And you're going to be able to rejoice even when going through hard times, even when people might take things out on you or lash out against you. The blessing of God, that life, that kingdom life is something that no one can take away from you. It's something that you can have and it'll be there in the good times. It'll be there in the bad times. Again, as Paul shared, I learned to abase, to do without, and I've learned how to abound. I'm content 
in every situation because my joy doesn't come from what I have. It doesn't come from the circumstances. I'm blessed even to be able to suffer, to partake in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And so, again, here, it's a life that I think if anyone looked at it, you'd go, wow, what a great world it would be if more people had these attitudes, these character qualities. And Jesus is saying, this is the picture of the citizens of my kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven. They're like this. Here's how they look. Here's what their lives are like. He goes on now and says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor... Sorry, I know that's not very slick, but it would get less slick if I didn't do that. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill can't be hidden. You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Salt and light. These are called, when the first things, the blesseds, are called the beatitudes. These are typically called the similitudes. A simile is something that you're like something or as something. And, and so you're said to be like salt, said to be like light. Salt, a preservative salt, something that gives a little extra tang maybe to the flavor of food and makes it special. It at least has some preserving effect. Um, It's not a perfect preservative, and certainly our lives don't just keep the world from going to pot, but it probably, the existence of Christians in the world is the thing that preserves the world as much as it does. We see after the rapture when it says that as the Christians, as the Holy Spirit in the Christians is removed, that's what restrains and then all hell breaks loose. But we are to be that salt, just gently seasoning the world, affecting the world. If you can taste the salt too much, you got too much salt. It's too salty. It doesn't, doesn't fulfill its purpose. You know, kids are good in restaurants of unscrewing the top of the salt and then like leaving it just sitting on top so when you go to salt your food all the salt comes out or you know putting sugar in the salt shaker and things like that I it it just doesn't work it doesn't help it's not a good thing and I've gotten to the point where I almost don't put salt on my food because usually there's some put in it when it's cooked anyway and it's just enough too much salt it it's not good it's not a good thing And for us to stand out and be in people's faces all the time, that's not what we're here for. We're not here to force everyone to live the Christian life. We're here to gently allow people to see what life could be like for them. Just gentle seasoning. And light, light is something that all you have to do is put it out there and it shows. He says, don't put your light under a bushel. And what is our light? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Glorify your Father who is in heaven. The light that we are to shine is that we're good. Jesus is saying that the people in my kingdom should be people where other people who, they don't even know about God, but they look at those people and go, wow, they're really good people. At least thinking, well, it's good for you. A lot of times people get saved and they're so, you know, beating their family over the head that family is really freaking out about them, thinking they're in a cult or something because we're so, you know, we're new Christians, we're all zealous, and we don't learn that ability to shine, to salt. Instead, we just, you know, bludgeon. He doesn't say you're the sledgehammer of the world. It's salt and light. And that's the opportunity that we have. And they see your good works. If that's what they notice about you, then it's happening. God's doing what he wants to do. But also, look, that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The result of the light shining is always that God ends up looking good, that he is seen more clearly. It's not that they would see our good works and glorify us, that we would do great things for God and then put banners up so everybody know it's us, it's our church, that we would donate money and then have our name put on a plaque, or that we would, you know, really shine as lights and so everyone would come to watch us glow. No, it's not that. That people would see that we're good people and really a lot of them doubt that and then that they would glorify God. 
that they would see him more clearly, that we'd get out of the way and, and they'd see him. And that's what we're called to, to be and to do as salt and light. Now, he goes on to explain his relationship to the law. And he says, don't get the idea that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. A jot is a yo that's the little tiniest it's the letter Y in the Hebrew alphabet, but it's a little tiny letter. And a tittle is what they called the little diacritical mark that would distinguish. There are about four letters, five letters that could be confused, except for they have this one little line on it, and that's a tittle. And so he's saying not even one little detail is going to pass away, is going to pass away from the law until it's all fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, I'm talking about a quality of life. I'm talking about what's behind religion. I'm talking about what's not external but internal from the heart, the kingdom of heaven, what it's all about as it lives in your lives. But he said, let me make this really clear. This isn't something that comes along and says, oh, the law was nothing. Do away with the law. He said the law was good. Hey, and if, if you could follow it, great. You'd be righteous. But your righteousness, in order to be saved by the law, you'd have to have a righteousness that way exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Not only that, he is promising and what he would eventually do by his spirit would allow people to actually have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Because as the Holy Spirit indwells us and works within us, the beauty is that we can end up living a righteous life but it's something that comes from within rather than without. God doesn't want us, God never wanted us to just conform in our behavior and be satisfied with that. He put those exterior standards because they're easy to see. And he said, yeah, here's what a right life, here's what a good life looks like. It's the law. And as the law was read, by all rights, the people, after they listened to all these rules, they should have said, how in the world could we ever do this? But instead, a, a goofy thing they said, nice sentiment, but the whole nation of Israel of one accord, when they heard the law read, they, they said of one accord, all that the Lord has said we will do. That's like if we look at this now and we go, oh, okay, he wants us to be righteous. The end of the chapter, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay, I'll do that. And there are some people in the church today who actually believe that they're perfect. People, in, especially in the Pentecostal holiness churches and some other churches, who actually believe. I, I haven't sinned in a long time. I read a book by a, a woman, a Christian woman, who was talking about different levels of Christianity. And she basically said that she had risen to a stage where she hardly ever sins. Where, like, she goes months without sinning. Oh, man. That's not what it's all about. That's someone who doesn't understand the law. That's someone who needs to be back under the law. That's someone who needs what it is to learn what it is to be poor in spirit and to mourn a little bit. The law was given to show us that we couldn't follow it, to show us that we needed someone else. Again, why does he want us to be poor in spirit? Because he will give us his spirit. Why does he want us to mourn? Because he can comfort us. Why does he want us to understand mercy? Because he wants to show mercy to us. But if we decide that in our own flesh, hey, we're salt, we're light, and we're going to work it up ourselves, we're going to create our own system, we're going to design what a perfect church is supposed to be like, and that's what our church is going to be. We'll find out what works, we'll put it all together, and we'll start having seminars and telling everybody how to do church. Be careful. Look out. Because that starts to sound a lot like somebody who is under the law, who thinks they know what it is to make a good church, who has the steps down, the rules down, the principles down. Better for us to go, we don't know what we're doing. God, we need you desperately. We need you to be working in our lives daily. We can't put a system together and then let it run itself. We need to hear from you all the time. 
We need to be plugged into you consistently and constantly because you're the source of our salt. You're the source of our light. All we are is reflectors of your light. And that's the only way that the law has relevance to us. As I look at the law, I realize I'm a failure. And you see this big circle where he says, you start talking about the law, hey, it's great, there's nothing wrong with it. I came to fulfill it, Jesus said. How so? First of all, he didn't violate it at all. He was the first person who was perfect according to the law. Paul was a good person. He said, before the law, I was blameless. But he also said, I'm the chief of sinners. See, when Paul came to see Jesus, when Jesus blinded him, then he couldn't see anything else, and all he could see was Jesus. He realized, oh, man, oh, wretched man that I am, he said. Who can save me from the mess that the law is creating in my life because I can't follow it, because I, I'm a failure? And so when we start getting cocky and we start feeling like we've got it together, man, we look at what he says. If you violate one point of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. You're least in the kingdom. Then we have to get our righteousness that's required. We have to get it from somewhere else. We have to get it from someone else. And that's the point. Our righteousness, the best efforts that we have, they're filthy rags as far as God's concerned. And so it's not about us being good. The goodness that shines in our lives when people see our good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven, it's because of his righteousness. It's because of what he does in our life. And if we start to forget that, then we better go back to beatitude number one. We better back up to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and remember that it's all about God's blessing comes from understanding how poor we are and that we need someone to come in and fulfill the law for us. We can't fulfill it for ourselves. And so as he goes now and begins to comment on like the sixth and the seventh commandment as he begins to talk about godly standards in the kingdom, we need to be reminded, we need to understand. He is not at all laying out in the Sermon on the Mount a list of rules by which we should live. A way in which if we do this, 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 and this, we'll be righteous on our own. What he's trying to do as he goes, and, and we'll see next week apparently, <laughs> that it, you know, you may think, hey, I've never murdered anybody, but he says, if you call your brother a name, if you say you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. You go, what? Is that right? Well, if we believe in the death penalty, shouldn't we kill people for saying they hate their brother? How? Why not? Well, because what he's trying to do is get to the heart of the matter and say the issue isn't you did this or you did that. You committed this sin or you committed that sin. You're so busted. You are so impoverished. You're so poor in spirit. That that's not even the point. What he's trying to address in the rest of the sermon, and you won't understand the Sermon on the Mount unless you understand this. If you haven't yet been convinced that you're poor in spirit, then he's going to prove it to you again and again and again. And if you say you hate people, he's going to lump you in with murderers. And if you look at someone to lust after, he's going to throw you in with adulterers. And over and over in this passage, he's going to, and I'm just warning you ahead of time so you can be braced for it, the idea of the Sermon on the Mount is to cause us to be poor in spirit, to cause us to realize we can't do it ourselves. And we need this. We need it constantly, daily. Because he doesn't leave us there. He shows us, he demonstrates to us, I'm taking care of it. I Don't worry. My righteousness, I'm going to give it to you. But this passage, this sermon these chapters is what he came to the disciples and said okay guys we need to clear something up right away you are poor in spirit you do not have a righteousness that can stand on its own and sadly to say the longer you're a christian i think the more we tend to forget that we're poor in spirit we look at those new Christians who are doing all those blatant sins and we boy, I'm glad God gave me victory over that. And here we are discovering newer, bigger sins and we're excusing them in our own lives through pride, through blindness of our flesh. And so we need to be reminded of these truths. This was Jesus talking to his disciples, not to the multitude. And we're his disciples and so we need to pay attention to it. I have... 
no idea how, I, I, I honestly thought we'd finish chapter five, but you know, I, I think we'll pick up the pace once we get through the Sermon on the Mount. This is heavy stuff, it's good stuff though. Let's pray. Lord, as we look in the mirror, the mirror of your word, as it reflects for us our shortcomings and our failures, we get the point. Lord, I'm convinced sometimes some of our biggest failures, you allow it to happen because we start to get cocky and prideful. And pride comes before destruction. And we understand that for you to bless us, we're going to have to remove pride from our lives. When we put ourselves on a pedestal, well, you have no choice but to knock us off. Lord, we don't desire to be object lessons of that truth. So, Lord, please keep us humble. Help us to truly mourn over our own failures to repent of our sins, to allow you to shine through us as lights in a dark world. Lord, I, prideful people tend to listen to messages and hope that somebody else heard it. God, I pray right now by your spirit, would you please just for a moment Convict each of us of something in our lives that we've ignored, our sin. And Lord, we agree with you that it's sin, that we fail. And we ask you to remove it from us. We desire to hunger and thirst for righteousness and to be filled. So God, give us your righteousness. We thank you that you've clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's the only way we can stand. It's the only way we can live. And because of it, we're blessed. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.